it's not incumbent upon us to complete the task, but neither are we free to desist from doing all we possibly can to bring down the high cost of health insurance. Our nation, the future of our nation is dependent upon it. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. It's Wednesday, August 12th, and that was Congressman David Scott, a Democrat from Georgia, you heard at the top of the podcast. Now, they don't have a plan to lower the cost of health insurance, right? They have, that's what David Kessenbaum has been reporting. They, their plan would cover more people, at least the Democratic plan, but it would not lower the cost. Right. Well, there's hope that eventually it would lower the cost, but right now it's like lowering the cost is the big nut that nobody has the solution to. But David and Hannah are working hard on a health care, a series of health care stories that will air on Morning Edition on Friday. On this podcast, I'll have something this Friday. In fact, Alex, I will tantalize our listeners by saying they are right now at my dad's car mechanic interviewing him for their health care story. Your, your dad's car mechanic is a doctor? No, but stay tuned. <laughs> All right. <laughs> on the show today, though, an economist tells us how to use economics in parts of your life that have nothing to do with money. But first, the planet money indicator. $27 billion. That is how much the U.S. trade deficit rose in June. The trade deficit measures the difference between all the stuff the U.S. buys, the people, companies, governments in the U.S. buy from other countries and subtracts all the stuff other countries buy from the U.S. What you get is the deficit, that we buy more than we sell. Um, The Commerce Department reported that imports rose for the first time in 11 months. This recession has been noted for huge drops in imports. Um, A lot of that was related to gas prices. Another indication that the recession may be fading. In fact, Wall Street Journal reports that the recession is over, according to a survey of economists that they have. Woohoo! Well, we don't know yet, but let's move on. Um, Alex, let's not talk about money. Let's not talk about trade deficits, because plant money is about economics, and economics is not just about money. Right. It's about love and sex and a feeling of community and faith in a higher power. And I should note for our listeners, you are not joking. I'm not joking. That is what's cool about economics. It's basically, it's a toolbox that lets you analyze anything. Any social thing, anything in society. Because basically what economists do is they, they have this way of studying incentives. What people want and what people do when the things they want to get are easier to get or harder to get. And it turns out with that, just that simple basic idea and a few others, you can you can kind of go to almost any aspect of human behavior. Right. And that brings us to Emily Oster. She's an economist at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and she pretty much never studies dollars or yen or bonds or anything like that. Nothing to do with money. Uh, We learned about her because we watched this great talk she gave at the TED conference. They have all these awesome videos of people giving talks. And in her talk, she used economics to uncover some puzzles about Africa, sex, and AIDS. Right. And this talk is great. And we we link to it on our our blog, npr.org slash money. She starts her talk by listing a bunch of things that a lot of people think they know about AIDS in Africa. 
She started out by telling the crowd that, of course, we all know that AIDS is a massive problem in Africa. We all know that. Uh, some 25 million people are said to be infected with the virus. Uh, if you know something more, you probably know that Uganda to date is the only country in sub-Saharan Africa that has had success in combating the epidemic. Uh, using a campaign that encouraged people to abstain, be faithful and use condoms, the ABC campaign, they de decreased their prevalence in the 1990s from about 15 percent to 6 percent over just a few years. So later on in the talk, Emily Oster says this surprising thing, that the more a country trades with other countries, the higher the AIDS level goes. Which surprised me because I think the more someone a country trades, the better its economy is doing. And I thought AIDS was associated with poverty, not with growing wealth. Right. But it also makes sense because the more you trade with another country, the more people and goods are flowing across the border and the more you have people coming and going. Uh, the more vectors there are for the spread of AIDS. More exports means more AIDS. And that effect is really big. So the data that I have suggests that if you double export volume, it will lead to a quadrupling of new HIV infections. So everyone around the world is celebrating Uganda. They have this ABC education program. AIDS collapses. Oh my goodness, their education program must be the reason. But Emily Oster says, well... There are some other things going on at the time that AIDS cases fell. There was a big decline in coffee prices. Coffee is Uganda's major export. Their exports went down a lot in the early 1990s. And actually, that decline lines up really, really closely with this decline in new HIV infections. So if you combine the intuition in this figure with some of the data that I showed you that I talked about before, suggests that somewhere between 20 and, and 50, 25 and 50 percent of the decline in prevalence in Uganda actually would have happened even without any education campaign. All right. So this is just a sort of counterintuitive, mind-blowing analysis that um, we really love around here. And so we decided to bring Emily Oster into the studio. And we thought that she'd be really good at applying economics to a bunch of your questions and riddles. We actually ask Planet Money listeners to send in their questions. We're going to get to those soon. Um, but first, I actually have my own question. Um, I wanted to ask her, you know, when you read this talk, basically what she does is she explodes these four myths that people have about AIDS in Africa. And the talk is a little bit of a bummer because one conclusion you can draw from, you know, the clip we just heard is that in order to decrease AIDS in Africa, you have to crash the African economy. And that seems like sort of a bummer. So I asked her, did her research suggest that there are any solutions to this problem that maybe we're not thinking about? So in that paper, I argue that one of the reasons that people don't want to change their behavior in response to HIV, that they don't care, seem to care that much about avoiding the disease, is because their other cause mortality is very high. The chance of dying from malaria or from getting hit by a car is very high. And so there's really no reason, there's much less of a reason to avoid HIV. I think if you take that seriously, if you think that that's right, then it tells you that one avenue for prevention is actually to try to address these other diseases, to try to lower rates of malaria, to try to make roads safer, to try to you know, lower rates of all kinds of yellow fever, all kinds of diseases that people, that people die from, and that that would actually sort of have these surprising and good effects on, on people's incentives to avoid HIV. So right. I think that's one thing that's kind of encouraging. Right. Um, the idea was that that in the United States, for example, when when if if somebody there's a, there's a higher 
I guess there's a higher incentive to avoid AIDS because if you do avoid AIDS, then you then you have a pretty good chance at a long sort of healthy life. Right. If you're 25 and you're thinking, hey, I could live till 80, I really want to. But if you're in a country where life expectancy isn't far above 30. And there's a lot of other things that are out there that are going to that are just as bad as AIDS and are going to kill you and, you know, possibly just as easily like malaria and other 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 war and other dangers. Then then you're saying that the the just incentive to avoid AIDS just isn't there because there's it's just one of a number of things that you. They're probably going to kill you, and sort of that's yeah. The way I mean, you think about, about the yeah. very extreme example: if somebody told you you're going to die for sure in ten years, and you really enjoy having unprotected sex, as many people do, and they said you're for sure going to die in ten years, would you like to stop having unprotected sex to avoid a disease which will kill you in ten years? Few people are going to want to are going to want to alter their behavior. In that situation, Maybe I would start just, something smoking else the is going to kill you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You think? I mean, there's many things that are like this. You'd start smoking. You'd eat red meat. You'd be drinking heavily. You know, all these kind of things. So, to an economist, this is what I get from Emily Oster and lots of other economists. Money is not the only cost. There, health is a cost. Sickness is a cost. Wasting time is a cost. There are lots and lots of costs we face on our journey towards the things we want, things that prevent us from getting them. Right. And those costs affect, you know, why we do the things that we do. Our incentives. Exactly. So let's get to our Planet Money listeners' questions and see how Emily Oster applies the study of incentives, costs, and benefits. All right. Emily Oster, uh, this comes from Rob Hines of Holly Spring, North Carolina. How is it that many restaurants can afford to provide astonishingly huge portions of food to the point that their meals are unhealthy to enjoy in the entirety when it seems as though the price for an average meal hasn't grown all that much over the last 10 to 15 years? This has been gnawing at me for a while now. It just doesn't seem sensible to me. So, Emily, I, I, I guess what you're saying is, and I'm assuming adjusting for inflation. We, we, it still costs whatever it is, 10 bucks for an entree, but suddenly the entree is a lot more food. Food costs money. How, how are they able to give us more and why are they doing that? What's the benefit to them? Yeah. So I think that, that you've, uh, you've gotten a little bit of the answer with the statement food costs money because food doesn't cost as much money as it used to. So the prices of food uh, with some movement around have actually gone down over time. And so that means for the same amount of money, the restaurant is able to purchase more food and is able to then serve the, the more food to you. So I think that's the, that's the simplest explanation. Now, the question of why the restaurant thinks you want this food, and why, don't, why isn't there demand for smaller portions? Or demand that, for the same size portions at, at smaller prices, or for the restaurant to just keep the profit. Yeah, so I think that... Um, that you know, the obvious explanation is most people like those large portions. People like to eat a lot of food. I mean, I think that's the easiest way to think about this is that, that if you didn't charge, if you didn't serve very large portions, you're Applebee's, you're right next to TGI Fridays. TGI Fridays is advertising, you know, we have tiny portions. Please come to TGI Fridays for our tiny portions. People are going to go to Applebee's for their giant portions. People like the idea of getting more. Right. Uh, so you could ask, you know, why don't people prefer smaller portions in for smaller amounts of money? And the truth is that some people do and that you can purchase a half portion often for less money or you can get a smaller thing or you can you can share something. 
But I think that the, the real answer here is just that prices of food have gone down. But yeah, but but I mean, just to push back, the you know, TGI Fridays could say, "Come to our store." Because they wouldn't say anything about tiny portions. What they'd say is that it's like two dollars less than Applebee's or whatever. And we should say that none of this is true. Yeah, we, we don't do. know. We don't know anything about <laughs> TGI Fridays or Applebee's. Right. But, they, but I think in that in that scenario you set up, I think that Applebee's would put up a sign that said. Come to Applebee's, our portions are larger than TGI Fridays. And in fact, I remember when there was an ad campaign involving yogurts, where I believe that Colombo yogurt was advertising that they had a larger yogurt size, that somebody else had made their yogurt smaller and cheaper. And the advertising campaign was based on the idea that Colombo still has the regular eight ounce size personal yogurt. But here's so. what puzzles me. So, so you know, this is part of the whole Michael Pollan literature that um, for a variety of government programs and other factors, more efficient farming, et cetera, the price of food has gone down and uh, obesity and overeating has gone up. So on the one hand, that makes total sense. Food costs less, so people buy more of it. But on the other hand, the cost of obesity, not in money, but in, in health, in mobility, in, in you know, quality of life, is very high. So why is that not a countervailing factor, for, at least for some people? So there's actually a lot – there's some literature in economics papers about the question of why people have gotten fatter over time. And I think that, that one important takeaway from that literature is that a lot of this is about snacking, that people eat, uh, people eat a lot between meals. So just as kind of background, I think a lot of what we're talking about in terms of why have people gotten fatter over time is about more calorie consumption between meals, more Doritos, more tiny beef stews that you can make in the microwave, uh, more Hot Pockets and other things like that. So people eat a lot more snacks. Less, and so that, and that less, accounts. And it's less about huge portions at dinner exactly. or lunch. Okay. Yeah. So that, that turns out to be to be a big just a, a big deal in terms of, of obesity. But I think you're saying that the costs of obesity are high, which I agree with, but they've actually gone down an enormous amount over time. So when we think about costs, we want to think about not, we think about whether costs are an explanation for the rise in obesity, not rise in obesity. We want to think about not what is the cost. The cost has always been high, but what is the change in the cost? I think the answer is that cost has gone down a lot over time. We kinds of diseases which are made worse by obesity, like diabetes, like heart disease, like stroke and cancer, all of these things we have much better treatments for now than we did 20 years ago, 50 years ago, certainly 100 years ago. And the mortality consequences of being very overweight have gotten much less severe. And if you think that that people are responding to that cost, which I, I bet that they are, then that would suggest that this stuff should go up over time. And also when you think about like what kinds of jobs people do now, more people work indoors than outdoors, more people uh, drive than, than walk. There's all sorts of ways that it used Although to be I much think... more costly to be, to be obese than, than it is today probably, right? Yeah, no, I think, that's, I think that's a great point. I think one thing that's important is people sometimes say that the fact that people sit at their desk, that is the reason that they are fat because they do not get exercise in their job. Right. I think that's a little misleading because if you think about how much exercise you actually would, most people would have been getting in whatever job they had before, it's not that many calories. This is not that big a change in caloric intake. But I think the incentive point is exactly right, that the incentive to be in shape if your job is sitting at a desk is very different than the incentive to be in shape if your job is 
doing construction. Yeah. And I think that, that that's changed a lot over time. And, and I just want to go stay on this topic <clears throat> one more second. But there's a countervailing thing, which my understanding is as a person's wealth and, and income rise and, and basic issues like just having enough calories to survive and having enough shelter go away as a concern, they begin demanding higher quality of life. That's where they want to use their surplus wealth. So that that's why you see movements in favor of organic food or cleaner air or cleaner water in rich countries. You don't see them in poor countries, even though poor countries tend to have worse, far worse of all of those and could benefit more immediately by, by marginal gains. So, so how does that work? I mean, why, why as people get wealthier, sure, maybe the cost of obesity has gone down, but, but the benefit of, of a healthy lifestyle has, has gone up. I think it depends on whether you think that people really enjoy eating. A lot. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not sure that I see what you're saying, which is that as people get richer, they should want to consume more health. Um, But I think some people would say as you get richer, you like to consume more food because people really like food. And that's something that they really that they really enjoy. Right. A bag of bugles. is a really amazing thing. It's really great. And if we live in a magical society where you can eat a bag of bugles every single day and stay alive and do your job and have a family. And maybe you're a little overweight. Yeah, exactly. But still, like, that's right. Exactly. Right. I agree. (laughs) Right. It's funny. It really does. It totally changes the way I think about snacking, bugles, obesity, everything. Right. You you see the cost. So there's a change over time of how much food costs, how Uh much illness costs, I found that really fascinating. You know, we right. heard all through the Sotomayor hearing that having diabetes is no longer a death sentence. You can, because of technical advances and stuff, you can actually live a longer time with diabetes. So so all of these costs related to health and actually just the cost of food are going down. And you see that it's not just money. It's the cost of having diabetes, the cost of being obese. Mm-hmm. Those are going down. So, so it makes sense that people consume more. But as I understand it, it, it um, the wealthier you are, the less likely you are to be obese. So, so I do think, and she's not here, so I can just assert this without having an economist tell me I'm wrong. That the the wealthier you are, you start you you somehow reach some point where you're saying, okay, yeah, I could just con- use my extra money to consume food, but I actually want to really live a long time and live a healthy, vibrant life. Right. So I'm going to consume health, health, <laughs> or food and. Surgery and liposuction. So we will have more of Emily Oster's answers to your questions coming up on later podcasts. And and if you have questions for Emily Oster, we're definitely going to want to get her back. So please do send those in. You can email them at planetmoney at npr.org or post them on the comments on this podcast at npr.org slash money. Or be sure to check out her talk on uh, on the TED website or on our own website, npr.org slash money. Or look up Emily Oster. You could read her papers. Yeah. All right. Google Emily Oster. All right. That is it for today. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you so much for listening.